Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. B of AML.com slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Now, the Polish lottie weakened after the EU launched infringement proceedings against the nation. The move comes in response to the introduction of controversial legislation which sparked anti-government protests. This hour, the European Commission said Poland has a one-month deadline to address the EU's concerns. Earlier, we spoke to Poland's Deputy Prime Minister. He says an overvote of the President's vote is not possible. President Andrzej Duda vetoed this and he now said that um, he will present the new legislation mm. and uh, to over veto, uh, overvote his veto is uh, not possible in this parliament because it mm. requires three-fifths of majority. So the previous legislation is kind of closed and now the turn is, the, the move will be made by the, by the president. Ian Bremmer, Eurasia Group President, and Michael Dada, MKM Partners Chief Economist, are with us. Ian, let me come to you first. I've got uh, the euro against the Zloty here, and really we're actually pretty much flat on the day, which suggests to me that FX markets perhaps don't see too much impact of what we've just heard in the short term. But what are the longer term implications of this tension between the EU and Poland? Uh, Poland, along with Hungary and really in some ways the entire Visegrad 4 in East Europe, um, are uh, not adhering to rule of law. Uh, they uh, are increasingly soft authoritarian states. And it's a good thing that the Polish president backed off what would have been effectively undermining the independence of the entire Polish judiciary. Uh, you'll remember that Trump, they had 15,000 Poles bust in to, to cheer him during his last trip uh, to Europe, where he started off with Warsaw. Uh, but they didn't have to bust in any of the hundreds of thousands that were demonstrating uh, against uh, this move by the Polish government uh, to make the country authoritarian right in the middle of Europe. And by the way, got to give the Trump administration credit on this. Tillerson's State Department actually came out with a pretty strongly worded memo uh, telling the Polish government that uh, the U.S. would not find it acceptable if they proceeded with this. So it's not as if Trump is just embracing authoritarianism everywhere. Uh, I think uh, President Duda recognized um, that uh, he was going to be in rather deep um, if he pushed yeah. this hard this quickly. And uh, ultimately, the EU is going to squeeze them, too. But none of this is going to change the fundamental direction in Poland, which is against uh, being well integrated in the EU. Right. OK, so does it in any way then change the fundamental sort of dynamics between Russia and the EU? Uh, Russia's interest in the EU and more broadly 
is divide and conquer. They want a weaker transatlantic relationship, which they are succeeding in helping to facilitate. They want more divisions inside Europe uh, with you know, countries that can decide themselves how to work with the Russians, which is why even the Germans opposed that U.S. sanction uh, against the Russians that was just passed by the House yesterday because German industry wants to do Nord Stream pipeline and other business with the Russians. And they also want more divisions inside the United States. If you're a country like Russia, whose economy, total economy, is smaller than that of New York City, you're not winning uh, by uh, having a well-run global economy and global integration. You win by having a backyard that no one else can play in. That means you want weaker divisions all around it. That's what Russia wants to see. And certainly the fact that many countries in Europe, including candidate member that will never become a member, Turkey, with Erdogan and Putin being much more aligned than the Turks ever were with the Europeans, those things all redound to Russia's interests. Mm. Michael Dahl, okay, I want to dive into this right now. This is really important. This has been out recently with Samuel Huntington as a compare and contrast theoretically to what the president's doing. What are Donald Trump's clash of the civilizations, particularly as you look at the European model out of World War II? Well, his speech in Warsaw was that. Agre- agreed strongly. How is that taken by Germany? Strongly agreed. And the Germans dislike. That's the right question, because the Germans are the single American ally that have the biggest problem with America throwing <clears throat> away support for liberal democracy. Democracy was not in that speech. Instead, you heard him talk about religion. You heard him talk about family. You heard him talk about nation. In other words, all of the things that bind together the Judeo-Christian nations that have nothing right, to do with liberal we, democracy. But, Dr. Bremer, we have gone from a Harvard theory is Samuel Huntington to say Fareed Zaghari's post-American world right. to your G0 world of right. great notoriety. Can Donald Trump pull forward international relations of Samuel Huntington from 40 and 50 years ago? Donald Trump can align himself and parts of the United States with others that would support a regression to that kind of nationalism. And one of the reasons he can do it is because the world is heading in that direction anyway. China clearly shows that, right? right? So, but that, that's, that's not going to change the world order in America's favor. It's going to instead create right. much more division. But this is so important why it's a joy to have Darda and Bremer together. Michael Darda, can he do his theory he's talking about, given the tepid nominal GDP the tepid animal spirit that Akerlof and Schiller have written about, it ain't there, is it? No, it's not there. And frankly, if we're going to move towards more um, populist and protectionist policies on a global basis, it's probably not coming back. Or at least, you know, these fundamental forces that are headwinds with regard to demographics probably end up exacerbated by weakness in productivity with further headwinds if we're, you know, moving in, in that direction. So I think they fit together. Michael, political risk was really the name of the game when you were looking at Europe in the first three, four months of the year. When you look at European fundamentals, how much does political risk factor into this for you towards the rest of 2017, even into 2018? Well, it's certainly a piece of the puzzle, but at least as it regards the Eurozone, things do seem to be going along pretty well. If you look at business confidence surveys, pretty much on cycle highs, the manufacturing PMIs pretty close to cycle highs. GDP growth, although it's slow, is growing fast enough to pull unemployment down. Uh, so, you know, I would have to say that, uh, that Draghi is succeeding. The medicine is working and the patient is reviving. The patient is reviving. Can you say eurosclerosis is over? 
Can you say it's a new resurgent Europe? I can't. I don't buy that. Oh, that's a different. Uh, that's yeah. a different question. Yeah. I mean, well, I'm I, asking you a different question. Yeah. Right now. Uh, well, look, I see that uh, President Macron's popularity has taken a nearly Stunning. 15 percent drop. Why did that happen? Well, I mean, why did the French election happen? People forget that he was this close to not being in the final round, and instead it was going to be Melenchon on the far left and Le Pen on the far right. Then we'd be having, no no one would be asking whether or not the euro was coming together if that were the situation. But because we got through it, now Macron, everyone says, oh, now France is the new model. The structural problems in France, the malaise among the French population is getting worse. You're saying even getting worse. Michael Darty, you wrote about this with Jude Winsky a a million years ago. Are we out of eurosclerosis in America or are we out of eurosclerosis in Europe? That's the theme. I don't buy it. No, I think the answer is no. I mean, what I was talking about, you know, with the business cycle dynamics, you know, is essentially they're they're coming out of an unfortunate double dip you know, two-year recession. So they're growing faster than potential. You're focused on potential growth, which is quite slow due to headwinds from very weak labor force growth, you know, weaker in in Europe and certainly um, Japan than in the U.S., and weak productivity. I mean, that ultimately decides and determines how fast you can grow over the long run. If you're coming out of a ditch, you know, you can and you should grow faster than the growth rate of potential. But over the long term, once, you know, the business cycle is healed and fully recovered, potential growth uh, drives everything. And and that's quite weak in Europe and in the U.S. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. B of slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Good morning, everyone. David Gurren, Tom Keen in New York City, joining us now from Washington, D.C., and the distance from John C. Calhoun, South Carolina, to Jim DeMintz, South Carolina, is maybe not all that far. The senator from South Carolina, uh, Jim DeMintz. Jim, you're much in the news. David Gurren has got smarter political questions than I do. I'm just going to start with a simple observation. Is Donald Trump a conservative? I don't know if he's a philosophical conservative. He's a pragmatic businessman, but his instincts move in the conservative direction of limited government and free people, uh, free markets. So uh, he's he's certainly been easy to work with. And as far as the policies that he's followed in his administration so far, right. uh, they've looked pretty good to conservatives. The senator from Alabama wouldn't agree with you. It has not been easy to work with for Mr. Sessions. Can Mr. Sessions survive the weekend, the week? Or can he even survive Wednesday? I, I sure hope so. There's no more honorable man than Jeff Sessions, and I know he would make the whole country proud if he continues as attorney general. I understand the president's frustration. The recu- recusal put the uh, uh, the president's fate in the hands of an assistant that Jeff Sessions had nothing to do with but appointed a special prosecutor who is now on a witch hunt with a lot of Democrat support. Uh, this is hard for the president, but getting rid of Sessions is not going to solve the problem. I think it will make it much 
much worse. So I hope uh, Jeff Sessions and uh, President Trump can get together and talk this through and and restore that relationship because there's no better friend to have in Washington than Jeff Sessions. Senator Dement, you've seen the, the fissures, the, the fractures in the Republican Party. There are these splinter groups now in the House of Representatives in particular. Of course, you went from the Senate to the Heritage Found, uh, Institute, the, the Heritage Foundation. Then you now are starting the Conservative Partnership Institute in Washington, D.C. Conservatism clearly very important to you. How at home do you feel in the Republican Party today? Do you see a Republican Party that can coalesce all these different groups? Well, Republicans are independent by nature. There's always been kind of the moderate Rockefeller wing and the conservative wing. What we're doing with the Conservative Partnership Institute is to pull conservatives together, to pull their staff together, to train them, to develop consensus among members so that they can leverage their collective clout. Right now, conservatives are independent enough that they might have 10 different positions on an issue, and that doesn't help them get anything done, and it makes it hard for leadership to work with them. So that's what we're going to be doing at the Conservative Partnership Institute, and that's conservativepartnership.org for anyone who wants to follow what we're doing. Uh, But uh, I think Republicans uh, uh, campaign as conservative. They campaign to repeal Obamacare. They need to start keeping their promises. You know, I bet there are a number of, of civics teachers who were scratching their heads last night wondering how they could explain to their classes sort of what happened yesterday in the U.S. Uh, Senate. What do you make of the way all of this was, was engineered on the Senate floor yesterday afternoon? Well, it was simply a motion to proceed to the debate on a health care bill. And the the problem is, is that uh, all of us as conservatives know that if it, it's not planned in advance, uh, particularly under the reconciliation process, that the debate and amendment process is a real free-for-all where things can go terribly wrong. Uh, so I'm not sure what's going to happen, but and Republicans are in a position where they lose if they do nothing, and they're probably going to lose if they do something. But we cannot let Obamacare stand as it is. It's hurting millions of Americans, and it's going to destroy the American health care system. So Republicans have got to try, even if they don't have the votes on total repeal. You know, Senator, and I, I will always call you Senator because of Mr. Calhoun. You are 55 miles from Abbeville. I want you to explain to the conservatives, the Tea Party types that have died and will Jim DeMint supporters. I want you to explain to them how they do business with moderate Republicans and conservative Scoop Jackson Democrats. That is not getting done in America. How do the John C. Calhouns and Jim DeMints do business? Well, they're different political worlds, and a lot of states are are now moving in a more conservative direction, and you have more moderate Democrats at the state level who are working with Republicans because there's not such a strong government union presence out across America. But in Washington, the controlling force for the Democrats are the government unions. They're pushing the Democrats in in a direction of more government. And so the polarization in Washington is much different than the rest of the country. said, I know David's got eight questions as well. I'm going to be very quick here. Can the Democrats move right? Is there any, can Nancy Pelosi find a Democratic Party that can win Wisconsin and Michigan? It's, Republicans are going to have to beat themselves because of the platform that uh, Democrats run on and the evidence of their, particularly their economic policies the last 10 years have demonstrated that it is bad. It hurts people. It hurts the economy. It hurts everybody they claim to help. And so Republicans need to make their message clearer. Their policies work, but their message has not made it clear to all Americans that 
their lives will be better with the Republican uh, leadership. Last question here, returning to what Tom asked you at the beginning of the interview here. You've got a president who is not an ideological conservative, as you say. How difficult does that make it for somebody like you, for your colleagues who are still in the Senate, uh, who are conservatives, not having a president who really takes up that mantle? I, I don't think it's a problem in that the president is looking for solutions. I mean, he, he wants the shortest distance between where we are and where we need to go. And he's committed to keeping his promises. We just have to convince him that our conservative policies ideas are going to work best for America. So we've got a fair chance with this president to make our case. And that's not a bad situation to be in. And uh, in politics, that's about as good as it gets. Senator Demint, thank you very much. Appreciate the time today. That's Senator Jim uh, Demint, former senator from the state of South Carolina, formerly uh, of the Heritage Foundation, now uh, starting a conservative partnership institute in Washington, D.C., focused on uh, the presence of conservatives uh, in Washington. Great to speak with him here on Bloomberg Surveillance. I like that idea, David. Republicans will have to beat themselves. That is fraught with further conversation. Yes. Seth Carpenter at UBS joins us here. Um, Head of the economics research as well. Seth, um, your note with Sam Coffin and Robert Sacken, um, there's a a real consensus theme about what we're going to see in this Fed meeting. Mm -hmm. You you have the good fortune of going into past statements and getting out the Seth Carpenter red highlighter and moving (laughs) words around. Which word will you look for when they release the August statement this July? So I think what's going to be most telling is how they characterize inflation. Uh, It's clearly been at the center of their debate in terms of the timing of the next rate hike. There's an off chance, not at all our modal forecast, but uh, an off chance that they may say something about the timing of the balance sheet runoff because Janet Yellen has said that could happen relatively soon. Lael Brainerd said that... uh, uh, normalization of the funds rate is, quote, well underway, and that's been their trigger word. But inflation should be first and foremost. You dev down at the bottom. I believe you've underlined out the dissenters. Is everybody on the same page? Mm, good question. Uh, everybody you mean within the FOMC? Yeah. Are, they, are we going to see any dissenters today in the, the voting? So I, I suspect we're not going to see dissents, but that's not the same thing as that everyone is in agreement. I think what was very interesting from my perspective, and this is how we wrote this up in our UBS uh, reports on the FOMC, in June, uh, Chair Yellen at the press conference sounded extraordinarily confident about the outlook for inflation, and I, I was actually quite struck listening to her. So our report that day said uh, it's surprising how confident she is. will be interesting to see in the minutes whether that confidence is shared. And sure enough, we got the minutes from the June meeting, and there was a much, much more diversity of view about uh, the confidence yeah. for inflation. And I think that, that diversity of views is continuing. The diversity of those views continue. Looking at the confidence uh, in your report, you're confident here in how the, the committee is going to write about or talk about uh, the, the labor side of things, when it comes to inflation, what, what do you think the, the, the consensus is going to be in that statement this afternoon? So the Fed, one, one needs to keep in mind that the center of the FOMC, so Chair Yellen and, and, and the core of the FOMC, are still very much <clears throat> Phillips curve-minded economists. That's their framework for thinking about inflation. And so when they are thinking about inflation, they're looking at how tight the labor market is now and how tight it's going to be in coming months, and that's going to drive their modal forecast for inflation. 
clearly there's variation month to month, and I think it's how much signal one takes from the, the high-frequency variation versus how confident one is in the model that drives the diversity of views within the FOMC. When you look at the, the timeline for hiking here, how much of that is tied to uh, the inflation data, to inflation expectations? How much of it is just the Fed now that it's starting wanting to proceed to pace? Yeah, so that's the that's a great question. I think uh, it is the the timing of more hikes depends a lot on how the data turn out, how inflation turns out. Chair Yellen was in fact explicit at her congressional testimony that the timing of subsequent rate hikes would very much depend on the outlook for inflation. Uh, I thought it was interesting when she made that comment, though, that she left out the decisions about the balance sheet. So it mm-hmm. seems as if the decisions about the balance sheets are pretty much. Uh, decided they just have to work out yeah. specifically when. But the timing of the rate hikes absolutely depends on, on inflation. You have a spectacular UBS page analysis on productivity. I want to come back and talk about this in the next session. But uh, uh, Seth Carpenter, quickly here, what did UBS learn when you dove into the details of our lack of productivity? Yeah, so uh, productivity is clearly one of the big topics in, in macroeconomics now, and we at UBS realized that we needed to make sure we started jumping into the conversation. I think the main thing to take away is that the current decade, the 2010s, is the slowest decade for growth and productivity that we've seen since the Second World War. And the biggest, biggest contributor to that slowdown, the thing that's missing in this mm-hmm. decade is what we call capital intensi- intensity. So yeah. how much and what the quality of capital is yeah. that's being used in production. I've been doing a lot, folks, on labor share, the quality, the, the efficiency of labor, the size of labor, if you will, within the American economy. It's a jaw-dropping chart. It may be my chart of the a year, but this will be special. We'll come back with Seth Carpenter and dive into the stuff out there, the capital out there uh, that that is in America and really has not been part of our investment scheme in this financial crisis. We're joined right now by Seth Carpenter. He's the chief U.S. economist at UBS. He's on our phone lines. Seth, phenomenal work on productivity. Are bulldozers capital stock? What is capital stock? <laughs> yeah, no, this is, uh, at, at times you sort of uh, have to combine philosophy with economics, but capital stock, you should really think of it as the physical uh, uh, equipment, plant equipment in general that, that the economy uses to, to produce things. But there's also investment in, in intellectual property, and so that's part of what is making the ongoing puzzle that much more challenging is the evolution of the U.S. economy going more towards the service sector, less manufacturing when it was just a manufacturing industrial economy much easier concept to wrap your head around, much easier to measure. And so I think economists are going to be struggling for a while now with, with all of these measurement issues. All these measurement issues, how, how much better is the, the Fed getting at measuring these things? There's been this ongoing conversation about the Fed's ability, capacity to, to forecast. Has that criticism been met by any changes in how the Fed goes about forecasting? I mean, one thing I'll say, and, and perhaps I'm biased because I, I sort of grew up intellectually at the at the Fed. I was I, I was a Fed economist for 15 years. Uh, but we won't the Fed, hold that against yeah. you. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that. Uh, uh, you know, the Fed has a great staff. Uh, they take their jobs extraordinarily seriously. They are deep, deep, deep into all of the data. They they have frequent conversations with everyone who's a, a data provider. So if you think about the BEA or the BLS. Yeah. Uh, so the Fed, the Fed team does about as good a job as one could imagine being able to do with the data that are Okay. Available. 
do they measure technology? One of the things that we talk about, folks, on the mic, off the mic, is in 15 or 20 years, Seth Carpenter, are we going to need to completely reframe the impact of technology on Janet Yellen's America? So my guess is 15 years from now, we absolutely will have a, a fairly different perspective on what's going on. Mm-hmm. We just can't see exactly what it is right now. But there's a, there's a tricky, tricky uh, aspect to thinking about technology and productivity and how it affects the economy. So in the long run, which Keynes famously said, in the long run, we're all dead. But in the long run, higher productivity, more technology per worker should lead to higher interest rates, which is clearly not what we're seeing now. Uh, but if at some point in time you get this increase in productivity so the economy can produce so much more with a given amount of, of inputs, with a given amount of labor, that just means there's downward pressure on inflation. And so the central bank would, in order to make sure you stay at full employment, keep interest rates low for longer. So the trickiest thing for economists to ever explain is the difference between the short run and the long run. And when you start talking about technology and what it does to the economy, that, that, that tension comes mm-hmm. in big time. On Jobs Day, we often have the pleasure of talking with, uh, with Alan Kruger of Princeton University. Good morning, Professor Kruger, if you're, you're listening. Let me ask you, uh, if I could here, if we're getting any better at measuring part-time work uh, in this country, that's something Dr. Kruger cares an awful lot about, has been working on that, especially in the context of ride-sharing and other uh, services. When, when you look at the labor economy, are we better at understanding the role that that's playing and indeed will play here going forward? Yeah, so, uh, I mean, if you're going to have Alan Kruger on, that would be a great time uh, to ask him. He's clearly one of the field's expert on that. You know, my, my sense on this is uh, we will be getting better over time, but the, the role of the so-called gig economy in the overall mm-hmm. economy is not huge right now, but it's clearly growing. And as a result, I think we will be getting better and better at refining mm-hmm. those techniques. You could imagine, for example, that uh, on jobs day, when you're asking people how much they're working, if someone is self-employed, um, are they really, really good at parsing how many hours per day they're working if they're, if they're, they're self-employed in that regard? And I think that's a question that probably right. didn't matter as much 20 years ago, but matters more now and will matter a lot more 10 years from now. Seth Carpenter, thank you so much with UBS uh, as we go to the Fed meeting uh, this morning. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. B of slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated.